This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College takes great pride in its diversity. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with award-winning journalist Greg Corti. He's a White House correspondent for USA Today. He focuses on executive power and national security in the Trump administration. He also covered the Obama White House. Corti recently won the 30th annual Gerald R. Ford Journalism Prize for distinguished reporting on the presidency. He also received an honorable mention for that award in 2014. Gregory, you covered the Obama administration, and now you're covering the Trump administration. Talk about the differences between the two. They're they're fairly obvious to the observer, but from being right in the thick of things, it really has to be a difference. Yeah, there are differences in policy and ideology, obviously, but also just differences in style that we see every day. Uh, Obama was famously dubbed No Drama Obama during the 2008 campaign. He was, it ran a very disciplined operation. Uh, his people were very loyal to him personally. And as a reporter, it, it would often be frustrating because the Obama White House rarely leaked. Um, and if there was a leak, it was an authorized leak. Uh, and you know that when everybody's leaking to you and they are all using the same talking points. Same um, language, same words. Exactly. Right? Uh, the Trump administration is 180 degrees uh, opposite. Everybody's leaking. Nobody's on message, including, by the way, the president of the United States, uh, who routinely through Twitter and, and uh, other public statements steps on his own message. Uh, if it's infrastructure week, he will be tweeting about Russia. If it's, uh, you know, if it's made in the USA week, he will be talking about health care or Hillary Clinton or you know, the 2016 election. Um, and so – in covering the Trump White House, um, it's very difficult um, to sort of triangulate uh, on what is really going on because you, you really – there are factions at play. There's a lot of palace intrigue. Uh, everybody's talking, uh, but everyone's off message. And so it's, uh, it's difficult uh, to figure out where the, the, the administration is going on, on any given day. So it's difficult finding the the kernel of message among the, the all of the chaff uh, yeah. of of leaks and and perhaps misinformation. Yeah, and and you know what? That's something that that the White House should be doing. It it shouldn't be up to us to try to divine their own message, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that I think is is going to change now that we have um, a new communications director. Uh, we we have a new press secretary. Um, and, uh, you know, perhaps th- this is, well, this is very explicitly a, a, um, a determination by the White House that their, their message wasn't getting across as efficiently as possible. They blame the, the, the media. 
there's nothing wrong with the message in their view. It's that we are not telling the American people all the great successes that they've had. But frankly, they're doing a poor job of, of uh, explaining their own policies and their own successes uh, because it's this constant chaos. And it's, it's something that I think Trump is comfortable with. I think that's been one of the biggest surprises of the Trump administration. We all thought that you know, once he uh, became president and settled down to governing, uh, that we would see a different style that we saw, than we saw on the campaign trail. Uh, remember during the 2016 campaign, uh, every time there was a controversy, the way that the Trump campaign tried to defuse it seemed to be to create a different and bigger controversy um, to distract us from it. Uh, the, the, the mantra in the White House is that controversy drives message. Uh, they actually like these uh, mini dust-ups uh, because they, they – get us talking about something other than whatever it is that, that we were talking about. Um, and But that's continued straight into the, the Trump White House. So the new communications director in his announcement or his first appearance came out and said, we need to let the president, we need to let Trump be more Trump uh, in, in message. That seems counterproductive to an observer, <laughs> to any coordinated message. Yeah, to, to some extent, that's a, a White House cliche, right? I mean, it goes back to let Reagan be Reagan, let yeah, Clinton be Clinton. Right. Uh, and then there was a whole plot. on There was an episode of The West Wing called Let Bartlett Be Bartlett. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, I, I think um, – but I think it is a recognition. And, and Scaramucci seems to, to have this um, – Trump mind meld kind of uh, ability that maybe some others uh, in the White House do not have. He, he he's uh, there's there's almost some personality mirroring going on there. You can see it in the language he uses and the way that he tweets uh, in his in even his body language. Uh, that when if you uh, if you close your eyes, you can almost sort of hear Trump in him. Um, and I think that's, you know, uh, look, at the end of the day, uh, we can talk about West Wing personnel. Uh, we can talk about the palace intrigue. But the president is the president. Um, the president is the one signing the executive orders. He's the one signing the bills, who's, who's making the policy, who's making the nominations. And I, personally, I, I try not to get too distracted by all the players and the movers and shakers because, again, at the end of the day, uh, the one who is ultimately responsible is the president of the United States. So from a reporter standpoint, obviously the president uses Twitter uh, for all kinds of reasons, to deliver message, to deliver attacks, uh, to divert people, I think, uh, off certain issues and take them down uh, paths. As a reporter, how do you cover the tweets? How do you, how do you say, okay, this is this is not worth it, or okay, this is this is a gem. I got to follow this. I think we've come around on that. There was a lot of uh, hand wringing, I think, early on about what do we what do we do with this? Uh, these are these are distractions, um, and there's real governing going on, and uh, we can't be chasing after every tweet. I think the consensus has emerged um, among the the White House press corps, among the larger media, and I think, frankly, uh, around the country, that Twitter is 
just a different medium, but these are presidential statements. Uh, there's a Twitter account someone created uh, that actually takes every one of uh, President Trump's tweets and turns them into the form and format that you would see, <laughs> right. you know, if a statement were released by the office of the press secretary, which sort of underscores that, yeah, they're very unconventional. They're, they're, they're worded uh, bluntly and in, in Trump's own unique syntax, but they are presidential statements and they have to be treated as such. Um, whether he, he says them in an interview or in a press conference or in a State of the Union address. Uh, and one advantage that we have, frankly, is that this is the first president of the United States where uh, I think we have real-time information about what's going through this guy's head as he watches the news, right? Um, that's something that you would never get from President Obama. And here again, it's just the contrast in personalities <laughs> or night and day. Uh, you know, President Obama was incredibly aloof and reserved and analytical. Uh, and if you would ask him a question, uh, the, 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 you would get a sort of a professorial answer that um, was, was all intellect but no id, right? And with Trump, it's all id. Uh, and you really get a sense, and this is what, uh, it, frankly, is appealing to him uh, about him from his his supporters is that uh, he doesn't hold back. He's uh, he says what he means, and he means what he says. Uh, now, that's not always the case as as these tweets get uh, translated into policy. You know, uh, as we're speaking here, he's tweeting about um, his own attorney general. And uh, you know why his attorney general isn't investigating. Hillary Clinton. Well, you know, we'll see what what becomes of that. Whether he actually fires his attorney general, but this is he's just venting. You know, that's this is unusual, right? That to, to to actually be able to see, uh, we're seeing uh, in public uh, what frankly Nixon would do in private. Um, is is just to to vent to his aides. Here we have the president of the United States venting on Twitter about who's loyal, who's disloyal. Um, what bugs him on any particular day? The the attorney general tweets, though, uh, obviously the first time in history that we've had a case being built either for the firing or resignation perhaps of, uh, of the attorney general through social media. I mean, th this, this, this is a first. Uh, normally, as I understand it, there would have been perhaps leaks from the White House to certain key news organizations, and they might have followed stories and built a case. But it would have been a, an elongated uh, process. Th this has been immediate over about the last week to 10 days. The, the medium is different, and I think you're absolutely right. The, the time frame is different. The, the, the news cycle is so compressed now. Things move so fast, and we're getting this in real time as opposed to, to – uh, over a number of, of days or weeks. But, you know, the, the actual uh, political tactics and, and the strategy may be the same. This is an old-fashioned trial balloon, right? Um, th this is what politicians have been doing for, for decades or longer, is uh, floating an idea, um, see how it goes over. If there's not too much opposition, then you can, uh, you can act on it. Uh, if there is opposition, you you have to change course. What is unusual is again the, the time frame, and also the, the you know usually I think as you suggested, trial balloons come from people where you can sort of have um, 
you can disavow all knowledge of, of the <laughs> plausible leak, right? deniability. Plausi- exactly, uh, it's hard to have plausible deniability when it's coming from at real Donald Trump uh, on a daily basis. But but contradictions don't seem to matter. He says one thing one day, one thing uh, the next day, and and nobody seems to mind. Well, and again, I think that's part of a deliberate strategy. And I think you know, getting back to, the, to what the difference is uh, between President Obama and President Trump is there was a a certain predictability, a certain rhythm to the Obama White House uh, that now is is completely lacking in the Trump White House. It's very helter skelter. Uh, it's putting out one fire with another fire, uh, and it, it, it sometimes it's been successful. I think in keeping the media. Uh, always guessing, always moving, moving away from yesterday's controversy and not being able to really um, always do the sort of fact-checking. Uh, and there's an you know, open question. You know, I'm a big fan of fact-checking, but there's an open question about whether uh, fact-checking is really effective in uh, such a polarized atmosphere where you have half the population um, willing to dismiss any sort of fact-checking because it's against their guy. Um, it's a it's a different media environment. It's something that I think uh, newsmakers, reporters, and and consumers of news all have to to adjust to. I believe you were on both foreign trips. Uh, yes. Went went on the uh, first uh, marathon trip of, of nine or ten days, and and then went to the the G twenty. Talk about the difference between covering Trump on these trips and covering Obama, or were they similar? No, they're, they're, they are different. Um, part of it is uh, on a very logistical level that is probably is of concern to, to nobody but the reporters who are there. You know, the Trump administration is still working out the kinks. And uh, even just sort of arranging um, events, credentialing, those kinds of things is very spur of the moment and see the pants with, with, with the Trump people. But that seems to be, you know, uh, how things uh, uh, run the White House. And I think they're comfortable with, as I said, with a certain amount of chaos. Um, you know, the, the uh, Obama on his foreign trips would there, – there would be two tracks. There would be a uh, meeting with leaders. There would be – bilateral meetings. There would be summits where he would meet with a number of different world leaders. Then on almost every foreign trip, uh, he would do some public diplomacy. He would uh, rent out some theater or some hall, invite young people in, um, or invite in an audience of of, uh, local citizens, and just talk to them. Uh, Sometimes it would be a Q&A format. Sometimes it would be a speech. But he would talk to them about these you know bigger ideas of democracy and uh, free markets and you know as much as uh, Trump or uh, President Obama was was derided as a socialist uh, uh, in, in some aspects of me, he was the biggest uh, evangelist for free markets around the world when he spoke in places like Cuba or right. China uh, or you know uh, formerly co- communist countries um, but there would be sort of a people to people interaction uh, Trump has not done that. Uh, it's all leader to leader. Uh, it's very art of the deal. Um, and it is person to person, leader to leader. And uh, I wrote a piece after the, the last uh, trip uh, to Warsaw and to Hamburg. Uh, there was a sort of mini summit of Eastern European countries in Warsaw and then the big G20 summit in Hamburg. And uh, 
in each case, there were uh, the real action for Trump was these bilateral meetings on the margins. Um, And we see this change in style in foreign policy over the past three administrations. President Bush, George W. Bush, was criticized for being too unilateral, for going in alone on the world stage, for not consulting with allies, but just going in, most famously in Iraq, uh, without a lot of uh, support from, from allies until maybe after the fact. Then you had uh, the pendulum swung the other way with President Obama. It was a very multilateral sort of foreign policy, right. working through international organizations, through the United Nations, through NATO, uh, through other regional uh, alliances, uh, trying to build uh, regional alliances through trade and other things, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the, the North American trade or the, the North Atlantic trade deal. Um, and then we get to Trump, and it's very person-to-person, bilateral in the language of international relations. But it's very art of the deal. It's very uh, – it, it draws on his experience as a businessman. And he, he believes that if he can get into a room with another world leader and talk and talk to each other face-to-face, eye-to-eye, that they can do business. He's more comfortable in that kind of environment. And I think it remains to be seen what uh, fruit that will yield – um, I think if from the Obama perspective, it's inefficient uh, to have to maintain 180, 190 different relationships <laughs> with <laughs> different world leaders, right? right? Um, you're, you're taking up too much of the president's time uh, in doing that. Um, but it, uh, it's a workaround for Trump that I think he seems to be comfortable with. And so, I, I you know um, – there have been some bad headlines out of these trips for him. Uh, the, the, there are the awkward handshakes. Uh, there is the uh, marathon meeting with uh, with President Putin of Russia. Um, I remember sitting uh, outside that meeting for more than an hour. You know, uh, it, it it was supposed to go on for half an hour. Uh, it it went on for much longer than that, and we're counting down the minutes and just wondering what are they talking about in there. Uh, but that's that's the way he likes to do business. The Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, uh, rumored that he's unhappy how long he will stay. How does he fit into this whole foreign policy diplomacy m- mix? Um, in some cases, he is the good cop to Trump's bad cop. Um, I, I think he... It's interesting because as as somebody who's not a career diplomat, uh, he's a lot more practiced in the language of diplomacy than President Trump is, certainly. Um, And so what we have seen many times over the past six months is that uh, President Trump will come out and say something and uh, Secretary Tillerson will come out and say what the the position of this administration is and it will be something completely different from what President Trump said. We, We hear this on things like NATO funding. Um, President Trump seems to believe that the NATO agreement uh, allows for back dues to be paid directly to the United States, which is not how NATO works. Um, Secretary Tillerson will go out and very sort of calmly explain, no, you know, we support NATO and we understand ha- how this all works. Um, and you see that again and again. Uh, it, it's, um, it, But the public diplomacy side of it, again, um, th- this is an administration that doesn't um, see re- international relationships as people to people as much as the Obama folks did. 
It's very much state-to-state, leader-to-leader sort of interactions. And so uh, just as President Trump meets one-on-one with with other heads of state, uh, Secretary Tillerson is going around and meeting with other foreign ministers. Um, And uh, we are still, I think, trying to flesh out what this Trump doctrine is. What what is the Trump foreign policy? Um, It's America first, but as White House officials are always quick to say, um, America first doesn't mean America alone, but what does that mean? And what are what are our aims? What are we trying to accomplish in the world? And how are we trying to accomplish it? I think has been uh, somewhat those, those bigger questions have been somewhat subsumed by the the immediate crises of these first six months. We've had Syria, we've had North Korea, North Korea, um, and uh, we have these questions surrounding Russia uh, that are all clouding what the big overarching foreign policy is. Help us understand perhaps the dynamic between the Secretary of Defense, uh, McMaster, Tillerson, and the president. Are are they all working in sync? Are they working in different orbits? Historically, as, as I'm sure you know, there's there's been a, a quite a bit of rivalry between the the Defense Department and the State Department. They should both be pursuing the same uh, policy aims, but through somewhat different means. Obviously, right. one one through violence and force and war, if necessary, and the other through quiet diplomacy and persuasion um, and negotiation. Um, I my perception is that President Trump has actually uh, attempted to align that a, a little bit uh, more than uh, maybe has been done in, in the past. And but that is a function of this long term trend towards centralization of foreign policy decision making in the White House through the National Security Council. Um, and uh, that is personified by H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, who is a former general, or as I should say, he is a general. He, he is right. uh, uh, technically detailed to the White House from the Pentagon. Um, and we have generals very much in charge in this administration at Homeland Security and the Defense Department and the, in the White House. Uh, and uh, President Trump has given uh, his Secretary of Defense a very long leash on Afghanistan. Uh, he has uh, his support for the Defense Department is reflected in his budget. We'll see where that budget goes as, as Congress considers it. Um, but th- it's a very hard power kind of administration. Uh, it is a... a White House that is trying to project American leadership in the world through military strength. Um, and uh, so that that leaves, uh, you know, Tillerson as a, a tool of that kind of a, of a foreign policy. I, you know, again, this goes back to the, the, the palace intrigue questions. Right. Who's happy? Who's unhappy? <laughs> who's about to get fired? Who's, uh, you know, if we had um, – Look, if everybody who who it was reported might get fired were actually fired, there would be nobody serving this administration. There are daily stories from the chief of staff on down. I mean, how many how many daily stories have we read over the past six months about Reince Priebus and how he's not long for this world, and yet <laughs> he it. is still the chief of staff. He's on the brink. Yes, uh, and so what we've had is an overhaul of the uh, the communication shop uh, a little bit, and we've had uh, a new uh, national security advisor um, after you know the first one 
got caught lying to the, the vice president. But other than that, it's been relatively stable in these first six months. Now, after the, about a year or so, the, the pattern is with past administrations, the, the president starts to figure out what's working, what's not working, and might make a shakeup. And that, so if, if we do see a little bit more of a shakeup in the next six months or so, that would not be all of that unusual. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, Programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Turning to the domestic side, uh, we saw, obviously, in the first 100 days plus a flurry of executive orders uh, basically undoing a lot of what uh, President Obama had, had put into place. That's sort of calmed down now, and the focus has been on legislation, obviously, with health care uh, being the, the first major piece of legislation. It seems to me, as an outside observer, that on the Senate side, the president's been hands-off until just recently. Uh, he was more active perhaps on the House side than, than on the Senate side. But it also seems that he just sort of says, bring me legislation, let me sign it, and let's move on without really being involved in, in the philosophy behind it or, 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 or the details, most assuredly. Is that an accurate perception? He would say that it's inaccurate. I, he's uh, spoken about this, that, you know, and you can see it in his tweets when uh, some news program is talking about how hands-off he's been, and you'll see him tweet that, oh, I've been very uh, hands-on. But his – Views of what he wants in the bill seem to have evolved. He's, he's championed the House bill only to badmouth it later uh, in a meeting with senators. He he uh, says, you know, it's it's an important step towards repealing Obamacare, and then he says it's mean-spirited. So I think the, the challenge for Republicans is having campaigned uh, – having chased this car – uh, for, for seven or eight years. For seven or eight years. They have now – the dog has now caught the car. Um and now what are they going to do with it? Um, and is it a straight repeal? Is it a repeal or a replace? Uh, they ha- they still, six months into the ability, now that they have the power to actually do something about it, they have not quite figured out what that looks like. Um, is, and so what you have is, you know, the president having a Rose Garden celebration to celebrate basically half of a bill passage. <laughs> I thought um, that was strange. But. Uh, well, this is this is, a, and you talked about the executive orders. Uh, this is an administration that has uh, a White House that has photo ops for um, relatively small policy matters, 
but they're great visuals uh, with you know the president sitting at the resolute desk and he's got his cabinet or supporters or members of Congress all behind him and they're clapping and applauding. It, and it it's a it's a visual idiom for a successful presidential agenda. We are attuned to see when the president is in the Oval Office signing something, it means that he's accomplishing something. We've got coal miners behind him because I'm bringing coal jobs back, right? With one signature. (laughs) Absolutely. But this is a guy, President Trump, who in 30 years of or or more of uh, being under the New York media spotlight has now translated the lessons he's learned from that to Washington. Uh, He's he's – He's so inexperienced at being a politician that we forget that he actually does have experience in public life, Um, frankly, more experience than than most politicians. Um, And so, uh, yeah, he's he's using those media tools that he's honed in in a a career in real estate and business, but very high profile, very high name recognition. He's translating the White House. but that's not how Washington works. And we have a president. We have a Congress. The bill has got to come out of Congress. And there are some irreconcilable issues that Congress is grappling with. If you uh, take away the individual mandate, you can no longer afford to pay for pre-existing conditions. That's just the basics of how health insurance works. And that seems to be uh, you know, a fundamental problem that the uh, the Republicans just can't seem to get themselves around and make the math work uh, to, to pass a bill that all factions of the Republican Party in both the House and the Senate can can support. Let's go from that to uh, the president's uh, handling of details. Uh, I know President Obama was a very detail. <laughs> oriented person, some would argue too detailed sometimes, uh, and got lost in in the weeds. But this president seems to lack grasp of details or even interest in details. Uh, Is that correct? Or is that just the the perception that he gives? I'll say a couple of things. One is, I I think you're analysis of President Obama might be a little misplaced. I, okay. I, think, I think President Obama was cerebral and analytical. Um, the criticism of him, if you talk to uh, national security people, if you talk to people in the intelligence community, the people who actually briefed him, one of the criticisms they had is that he was all at 50,000 feet. Um, and again, that was a very st- – the pendulum swings back and forth. That was a, maybe an overcorrection of what President Obama saw as President Bush, George W. Bush, being too in the weeds on intelligence and operations and wanting to know what is the source of this little piece of information about yeah. al-Qaeda and what they're doing. Um, with Trump, uh, it seems to be, um, uh, I think, a, a continuation of – that I mean, Trump is is looking at the big picture. His uh, his overwhelming um, to the extent that he has a foreign policy that you can articulate it. It's basically defeat ISIL. That is that's yeah. job one in right. foreign policy. China, Russia, everything is secondary. And so I think he's focused on that. 
in, in a way, it might be, and we'll have to see. We'll have to wait for the history books and the memoirs to be written. It may be Reagan-esque in a way. Um, you know, President Reagan was often derided for not being very detail-oriented, but he had a very good way of seeing the big picture and focusing his administration on, for him, the big task was defeating communism, defeating Russia uh, in the Cold War. Um, and uh, so the, the personal style and, and how he accomplishes that um, uh, is, look, different methods work for different presidents. And if you, uh, if you are a Trump critic, um, you might be, you may or may not be relieved to know that there are professionals in the White House. There are, there is a, a professional national security apparatus uh, that, in in many ways, remains unchanged from administration to administration. Uh, but again, as I said, the president is the ultimate decision maker. The uh, the intelligence apparatus exists solely to inform him to make him, to allow him to make better decisions. So if he's not asking the questions that need to be asked in his intelligence briefings, um, that's that could be a problem. Uh, and I think if you if you talk to uh, the intelligence community um, uh, across time, there, there's a very good book by David Priest um, called The President's Book of Secrets that, that traces the the uh, pr- the presidential daily briefing from its origins in the Truman administration uh, through the Obama administration. And what a, a common theme is uh, from intelligence officials across generations is that the they want questions and feedback from the president. It helps them to inform him better. Uh, and so an informed president, a curious president, uh, is a great national security asset. Um, and frankly, we have not seen that from President Trump, at least publicly. From not being detail-oriented in, in a sense – to the other side of a personality uh, being President Trump where he's obsessive about things, it seems, obsessive about the election results, obsessive about whether he won the popular vote, uh, uh, reiterating to Boy Scouts about the, the, <laughs> the election and how well he did in the Electoral College. And, and all of this, just an absolute obsession. Those seem to be contradictory to me. Uh, don't care about details, obsessed about certain things. Now, that's only my perception. You can tell me whether that's accurate or not. But my question is, as a reporter, how do you deal with reporting the obsessions? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's it's um, it's a cycle, right? I mean, it, when uh, President Trump obsesses about the results of the 2016 election uh, and the electoral map, uh, he is responding to what he sees in the media as a questioning of that through continued probing into questions of, of Russian interference, meddling, and the intelligence and, and so forth. And so then we end up covering his denials and his obsession and, and that sort of feeds this cycle. It continues to be news. Uh, at some level, and I know this is frustrating to people, but at some level, the job of the White House press corps, frankly, maybe its predominant mission 
is to just tell the American people what the president does and says on a daily basis, right? Now, that's a little that, – that's changing to some extent because the president has the ability to tell the American people what he's doing and saying uh, directly without going through the White House press corps. And so I think over time our, our uh, mission is evolving to be more analytical, to do more fact-checking. Uh, to figure out what he's not telling us that he's doing and saying behind the scenes. Um, but in large part, you know, our agenda as White House reporters is dictated by what the president says on a daily basis. And so if he is preoccupied with the 2016 election, we're going to tell the American people that he's preoccupied with the 2016 election. We're going to try to put it in context. We're going to try to explain wh where that's coming from. Um, uh, it, it will sometimes have caveats in it that, well, no, actually, he did not win the popular vote. Um, you know, there's a lot of fact-checking. That, that One of the stories uh, in the headlines these days is this uh, election commission that he has appointed right. to look into right. allegations of election widespread election uh, fraud on a mass scale. Um, those we have to point out that, that those allegations have been unproven. There's nothing even approaching the order of magnitude of three million um, uh, illegal votes that that anyone can can see, um, but I mean, look, I, I, how do you cover that? You have to cover. It. And, and this is the the prerogative of the president. He was elected president uh, through the rules that we have and the constitutional system that we have. Uh, he sets the agenda. He appoints a commission. We're going to cover that commission, and we and so I think the media is going to continue to revisit the 2016 election. Because the president continues to revisit the 2016 election. It seems that uh, you're put in – as a reporter, you're put in strange positions. Uh, and for example, the rallies that he continues to have. Normally, the president goes out and speaks somewhere. It, somebody covers it. You might not, but somebody – is is there to cover it. It seems that this is the first president in modern times that this early in one's term, I mean the day of the inauguration, a committee was set up, this early in the term that there are political rallies to to shore up the base or, or to give red meat to, to, to the base. As a reporter, what do you do with those? Are those news or are those – I mean he goes out and says the same stump speech he said with minor variations. Yeah, they're news. Um, okay. I, I think you have to uh, – I, I agree with you. Uh, I, I think that it is mostly the same Trump's, uh, Trump speech. Trump stump, stump, stump speech. speech. Trump speech, yeah. Uh, the, uh, that we've heard going back to you know the, the campaign last year. So you're listening for the nuances, what's different, what's tied to the headlines of of today. You know, I used to be, before I, I went to Washington, I was a, a political reporter in Ohio. And uh, so to some extent, when a presidential candidate came to Ohio to give the stump speech they, they'd given all across the country, the fact that they gave it in Ohio was the news <laughs> to me, right? Um, so... Uh, there's always going to be uh, – so as we speak here, the president's going to, to Youngstown um, uh, to to give another one of these. Uh, and I, the, the 
the setting is going to make a difference. Uh, when he talks about the loss of American manufacturing jobs, it has a particular resonance in, in a place like Youngstown yeah. that it maybe it didn't have when he talked about the same thing in Gettysburg or uh, Orlando. Um, so, yes, it's news. Uh, yes, we have to cover it. Uh, yes, we've got our, our ears open for it. But, yes, I, I think I'll also concede your point that we have to – to put it in the proper perspective that it that is campaigning and not governing, he doesn't have a, a declared opponent yet in the 2020 presidential election. And I, I guarantee you that the cable networks will either do it live in toto or at least in relevant part. They'll have somebody monitoring and break in. There is – I think I'm not a psychologist, but I'd li- I, I like I'd love to talk to a psychologist about this because my my hypothesis is that there's something about Trump's speaking style, his public speaking style, that um, is that draws people in because when he speaks extemporaneously, not when he has a prepared speech, even when he has a prepared speech, but especially when he's speaking extemporaneously, um, there is a very stream of consciousness delivery style that he has that leads the audience to think, what the heck is this guy going to say next? Uh, it's not linear. Uh, so even after he moves off a topic, he can always come back to it. And I find myself, maybe this is a, a, a job hazard I have, but when I watch a Trump, I, I'm glued to it because I need to, you know, I don't know when the news is coming. As a reporter, you develop an ear in it's listening almost to politicians, the pacing. <laughs> with the pacing, yeah. with the you, there's a preamble and something, but you can smell the news coming, right. right? That's not true with Trump. The news can come out of nowhere at any given moment, and if you blink, you might miss it. There might be a little sound bite that completely overshadows the rest of what he says. You can give a speech to the Boy Scouts, in which 90 percent of it was, <laughs> you know, pretty uh, basic fare of you know responsibility and loyalty and so forth. But then you know he can throw out some red meat to Boy Scouts, um, and so yeah, I, 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 and I think this is true with with all of Trump's press conferences and so forth. I, and and it translated into the daily briefing, which uh, is reporter. I look at as this is a place where I can get some basic facts and figure out what is the president yeah. doing? Is he making phone call? What, how is he uh, trying to advance the, the Obamacare replacement bill? What is he doing? How is he spending his day? And instead, it became this sort of the same kind of style, rapid fire question and answer where uh, with Sean Spicer, you did not know, you know what was going to happen next. And it became theater. And it, became, it was great ratings. For the networks, and we're now you know six months in. We are every White House press briefing. Uh, they were televised before. Very often they were taped, and you you could edit them. You could say, okay, this is where the news was, and you could save it for the nightly uh, the newscast. Now they run live on all the cable news networks, uh, just as the, the the Trump speeches does, because they get ratings. Because right. there is a fascination in this country with President Trump. I want to shift. One last question to, on the journalistic side, and this seems to be the era of the print reporter uh, really shining. Uh, all of the news that's come out of the Washington Post, New York Times, other publications too. It's a smattering uh, all, all over. Uh, 
the print reporters are the stars on the, the, the cable shows. We don't seem to have any true broadcast reporting. I mean, we had the Lester Holt interview, which was almost fluke, but but the, there's not broadcast reporting. There's broadcast analysis, perhaps. There's broadcast punditry. Uh, there's broadcast interviewing of the print reporters who have been out doing the stories. It's the first time I've seen it, at my term, this bad. <laughs> In, in the sense that they're putting all the burden on you. Um, well, I'm happy to share that burden. <laughs> um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the lack of transparency by this administration. And having covered the Obama administration, having covered the Trump administration, I will tell you that they are uh, both very um, – transparent and untransparent in very different ways. Um, and so with uh, President Trump, there's a, a complaining from uh, our broadcast colleagues that uh, so many of the news briefings have been off camera. Um, but you also have a president who routinely gives interviews to print and wire reporters. Uh, in the past few weeks, Reuters, the New York Times, Times. Um, he, he has particular report, not, not just you know. In, in often those are you know, teams of reporters, uh, which frankly, I mean, I think are better than press conferences. Oh yes. Um, now I prefer press conferences because I can actually be there in the room and right. have have a, a shot to an- ask the, the the questions, whereas I'm not getting invited into the New York Times interview with the, the, the President Trump, as long as I work for USA Today. Um, but the the ability to go in depth. And, re- and challenge the president and follow up and really follow his train of thought and to talk about a broad variety of subjects. And frankly, there's more of a, a, a even a liberty to maybe even interrupt the president. Usually, you know, the, 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 the president is sort of a singular figure in that he's given great deference in press conferences right. and interviews to say what he wants to say without being interrupted. But you have a little bit more license to, to move the conversation uh, when, when you're doing an, an interview. And those have been, yeah, predominantly by print reporters, but it, it also by – there are specific reporters who the president has their cell phone numbers and will call them up. In one case, I'm thinking uh, Robert Costa, the Washington right. Post, he called him in real time as he was pulling the health care uh, bill from a vote in the House the of Representatives. Time. The first time. Um, and and Costa kept him on the phone, just keep him talking, keep him talking, th- so that he could tweet or report uh, in live in real time uh, what the president is saying. That's a relationship that he has with print reporters. Again, I think that goes back to his New York, New York. media days uh, that he doesn't really have with broadcasters to the same extent. But even more importantly, I think this is where you're coming from. You know, the the most important stories on uh, intelligence, on uh, the 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 Russia investigation, uh, of the now confirmed contacts that close Trump associates and campaign officials had with people representing or pretending to represent the the Russian government. Uh, those stories have come from. Print reporters, primarily, I have to say, and this pains me again as a as a USA Today reporter, they're coming from two, just two newspapers uh, yeah. by and large. Uh, the 
the, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Now, at, I'll put in a plug for USA Today. We have an investigative team that has done some great work and, and some groundbreaking work on uh, President Trump's uh, business empire, potential conflicts of interest there, lawsuits against Trump uh, and how those might right. uh, affect his presidency. So we've tried to carve out our own uh, area. Um, and uh, there are other outlets out there, too, that have done some, some good work. But it's primarily these two big behemoths. Uh, of journalism that have been duking it out back to the Pentagon Papers. Uh, but th- you know, that's important to have that experience, to have these uh, reporters who have covered uh, – you know, a lot of the reporters who are breaking these stories have you know, uh, covered intelligence uh, dating back to 9-11 and have deep contacts in the, in the intelligence community, current and former intelligence officials. And that gives them the ability to, to break stories day in, day out. Uh, I was talking before about some of the rhythms of yeah. the Trump White House and how unpredictable they are. But one of the things that's become semi-predictable is at about 4, 4.30 or 5 o'clock every afternoon, you're bracing yourself for the, <laughs> for the next, next blockbuster scoop <laughs> yeah. um, uh, about uh, you know the, the Russia investigation. And so, yeah, that, that is somewhat gratifying uh, to see the elevation of, of print journalism again. This is a whole other – conversation, but that doesn't necessarily help us with our business model, which is uh, right. driven uh, uh, predominantly by advertising that is fleeing to digital more and more. But look, these stories break online. Uh, they don't wait for the the, the, no. the printed newspaper. Um, and it's bringing a lot of readers to good, serious journalism. Uh, and, and so I'd go even beyond what, what you said about uh, print reporters. I think it, it is a uh, I hope the beginning of a new golden age of journalism writ large, whatever medium that is, whether it's broadcast, uh, online, newspapers, uh, whatever form or format it takes. The fact is, there's some very good journalism being done. And I think that that's something that gets lost as we talk about this crisis in uh, the business model to support that journalism. Gregory, thank you so much. I know you're on vacation. I appreciate doubly your time. Uh, Love to do it. And uh, hope that we can talk again as things progress. Sure. Thanks. Today, we've been talking with award-winning journalist Greg Corti, the White House correspondent for USA Today. We talked about covering the Trump presidency. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or you can review it through Apple Podcasts. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.